are in our third week of our Epiphany series. Epiphany is the season of light. It's one of the faith traditional liturgical times, and we celebrate that Jesus is not only born, but has now revealed the light of God to the nations, to all, particularly us Gentiles, that this message was much bigger than just the people of Israel. And so we are talking about pursuit because our faith is not simply something we just have on the calendar and go to and go home. It's not something we just simply check off in the morning, maybe read some scripture, and that's it. Our, our faith is a pursuit, an active pursuit in all that we do. It's an undoing of all that we think we are and a, a redoing or a recalibration, as we'll get into, as to what God has to say about our lives, about who we are, and what this is all about. Pursuit. You can sit back, and God's not going to challenge you much. But if we pursue, it's a different story. And so our first week was revelation. The word revelation, our, our message focused on a calling to open our eyes and our hearts to hear what God's been trying to reveal to us, to see what we didn't see before. Week two was submission, a calling to lay down our dreams, our desires, our will, in order to have the capacity, the space, the time and the room to seek after God's will alone for our lives. And our life as a church. This is a communal effort. Today is recalibration. Recalibration. This is a calling to stay fluid. Because the Holy Spirit is ever working in our lives. And we have to be ready to be fluid. To be guided through each and every season on a quest for growth. Because that's what God is after. Helping you grow. Recalibrate. So the word calibrate, it means when you take an instrument, maybe if you're an engineer or you work with machinery, you take an instrument, you, you evaluate what's coming out of it, what it's doing, its numbers, its measurements, its purpose, and if it, you measure it against something else that you kind of consider to be to make, you know, the standard, and if yours is off, well, then you adjust it, you set it, and you calibrate it back to where it needs to be. Recalibrate is you calibrate again. Pretty simple. We need to carefully Assess, adjust, and set with the Holy Spirit again and again and again. It's an ongoing reality for us Christians to be of recalibration. We're on a journey of sanctification and perfection. You like those churchy words? Yeah? In our Wesleyan faith, we understand that the Spirit was at work in our lives long before we ever knew it. This was provenient grace. And then we realized our need for God, and so we cried out to God, and we received baptism, and in that moment... We have justifying grace that cleans us, that wipes us into pure, worthy people in, the, in Jesus Christ. And at the exact same moment, we receive the sanctifying grace, which then leads us forward to be sanctified, to be made holy, to grow more and more perfect until the day after we die when we are in perfection. So every day between that day and this, we're growing, right? You're either growing toward perfection or you're growing in another direction. We as Christians want to always be growing into perfection. Father Richard Rohr says this, Sin happens when we refuse to keep growing. That's where sin occurs. If we keep growing, we're going to find ourselves walking away from sin and walking toward God. The Holy Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit's purpose is the sanctification so we all begin the journey of our life of faith 
with a destination or a course in mind, or we just begin our lives. Maybe you're not there yet. You've begun your life, and you kind of have your idea of where you want to go and how you want to get there. But life doesn't really play out that way, does it? you got twists and turns and ups and downs and failures and successes, and you've tripped and fallen a few times, and you've had moments to dance, and you've had moments that broke your heart. And all the while, you've had to unlearn and relearn since you were a kid how to journey through this mess and this beauty of a life. Amen? We reach a point where we develop some perspectives and then we fight to maintain them. And that's where we struggle, where we refuse to keep growing. Because God always has more to reveal, unless you're perfect already. Anyone perfect already? Okay, well, that's good. Step one. So sometimes we have to evaluate what what it is we're fighting so hard to maintain. Our fight to maintain can sometimes motivate us more than our, our fight to grow. So in 2010 been telling you a bit about my story. So I told you about some of my early life and teenage years, and then I took the job as a youth minister, as what I talked about last week. And then they said, we want you to go to school and finish your degree and get a youth ministry degree. And so I looked at the University of Indianapolis. They have a religion and philosophy. So I, I said, I'll do that. But in the back of my head, and Lauren can attest, I was saying, this is a waste of time. I don't need this, right? I mean, to know about Christianity. I mean, you got the Bible, what else do you need, right? And then I walked into my first biblical course, New Testament, in the spring of 2010, knowing all the things I thought I knew. And then I learned something monumental that changed everything. Are you ready? Matthew didn't write Matthew. You're kind of like maybe feeling like me right now. What? It says Matthew. Well, Yeah, our Bibles today say, but they didn't for a few hundred years. It never claims authorship. There's nothing in there to say this is who wrote it. Now, Matthew maybe wrote Matthew, but that's really a moot point. It became known as Matthew as a way to reference it. But that challenged everything I'd grown up with. Matthew didn't write Matthew. Well, what else do I not know was where my mind went. And what do we do when we have new information that challenges us? We resist. We resist. Not everyone in my class was open to this new way of looking at things. It was sadly the most vocally religious or those who had been given something to maintain for years that struggled the most. And that really made me sad. My Jewish teacher said, wouldn't it be great if it were the Christians that really led the way into opening up and understanding their tradition at a deeper level? But it's sadly the Christians who fight the most because it's a human problem. I I do. Do you resist new information? Is that your first instinct? When we're beginning to hear something that challenges us, we don't want to hear it. Worse yet, we demonize the source of the new information. And so, this is nothing new. Jesus, hometown, Nazareth, he goes there to preach on Isaiah and offers a new word on it, right? It's his people. It's the people he grew up with, the people that saw him in diapers, right? This is his people. What did they do when he preached? They tried to throw him off a cliff. Yeah, Luke 4. This was the passage given to me in my preaching course. The first thing we did was read that passage, and they asked, do you want to preach? There's some truth to that. They did it to Jesus. They're going to do it to you. Some of Jesus' peers actually labeled his work the work of Beelzebub because they were fighting to maintain what they knew, how they understood it. Most of Jesus' family struggled to be open to this recalibration, which is why at one point in the gospel, they come to get him to take him home because he's lost his mind and he's bringing 
shame to the family. And he says, those of you before me, those who hang on my words, those are my brothers and sisters and mother. This is my family now because you're open to what I've come to bring. So we focused last week on John the Baptist's resistance. Jesus came to be baptized and John said, I'm supposed to be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me? No information. In our reading today, we find John had adjusted his sights. The next day, he says to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take the sin of the world. Now, those disciples follow Jesus. They leave and follow because they understand who he is through this different lens. And they come up to him and they want to know, Where are you headed? Where are you going? A loaded question, isn't it? Were they assessing if they were going to follow him based on his answer, if he was theologically sound? Because we do that to each other. Amen? Okay. What if Jesus had turned around to them and said, well, first I'm going to travel through Israel. I'm going to offer up new teachings on the law. I'm going to challenge all the traditions of the people. And then I'm going to go to Jerusalem where I'll be tested, arrested, tried, mocked, beaten, marched, and crucified. Want to come? Well, they would have ran. They would have said, no. Which is sometimes what we do when we start to hear this language. Now, these disciples, as pure as their intentions were, they had to be recalibrated by following Jesus and slowly be able to see what he really had to show them. And even when he died and he had told them three times, I'm going to die, they still struggled to wrap their heads around it. If they struggled, we struggle. Amen? So we can just forgive ourselves a bit. This struggle is one we all know. We begin our life of faith, most of us, with a call to life over death. Eternal life. That sounds, that sounds pretty good. Comes through Jesus. Sign me up. Resurrection. Yeah, I'm in. And that's all true. It's the good news. But that's simply where the story begins. We want to be in eternal life, but eternal life starts right now. Here. Our calling to live our faith is not reserved for after we die. Our calling is now and here and for this world around us. God is not going to destroy this world. God's going to renew, restore this world. Amen? Our Isaiah passage focuses on a conversation, and this is going to help us. It's a conversation between the prophet and God, and it begins with some recalibrating. It begins with a reminder that the prophet was called by God to speak the word for Jacob and Israel. All right, Jacob were the people of Israel that were still in the land of Judah, and Israel are the people that had been exiled off to Babylon, and everyone was pretty heartbroken at what had happened. They wondered, did God forget about us? Isaiah brings the word of God to recalibrate the people from an identity of despair to an identity of hope. God had created Israel to be the weapon of God, it says, the voice, the voice of truth and justice. And instead, the strength of God given to Israel was in vain and used for nothing. And we can point at their story and know their story. Do we know our own? Where we feel like, gosh, we had an opportunity and we squandered it. God wants the whole earth, the whole thing, to experience salvation through truth and justice. Every nation, every ruler, every person, and the prophet's calling to help God restore Israel grows much larger than even the prophet realized. And that's what we find in the text. Because it's going to go to everybody, not just the prophet's people. Does it seem like a new message? It does to Isaiah, but if we go back to Genesis, way back when, when Abraham was called, God made it pretty clear, I'm going to bless you so that all people will be blessed. So what happened? Did they forget? 
They get so tied up in what they started to see that they stopped being recalibrated. And now all of a sudden it seems like a new message. Had the people lost the message along the way? Yeah. And so have we. We do that. Tomorrow is Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Now we celebrate him because he was a prophet of God for this nation to speak a word of truth and justice. For nearly 30 years, the voice of truth truth and justice was spoken through the civil rights movement through the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. 30 years. Why did it take so long? And that wasn't even the beginning of the discussion. Before that ever happened, the United Methodist Church had, or the Methodist Church had split over slavery and segregation in the 1800s and then came back together in the early 20th century before the civil rights movement even began. Why did it take so long? The nation had struggled through all of it too. Racism, it's becoming easier for us to recognize as the manifestation of evil. I mean, all of those who joined in the nonviolent revolution through which God's justice and truth was revealed to the world. What I mean is this, sit-ins. You know about sit-ins? If you don't know about sit-ins, this is what, this is what people had the audacity to do. They would go into a restaurant that was for only white people, and people of color would go in and have a seat. And they'd sit where they weren't supposed to. They wouldn't say a word. They wouldn't do anything other than sit. And so what would happen is people would come and have an issue with them sitting where they're not supposed to, try to put them in their place, maybe tell them they need to go, maybe encourage them to leave. Maybe that turned into angry words. Maybe that turned into shouting until eventually someone maybe spit, and then eventually someone hit and then beat and then stabbed and then killed. And those were sit-ins. What it says on the internet, because the internet knows everything, it says sit-ins were a tactic that aroused sympathy for the demonstrators among moderates and uninvolved individuals. So they did what they did, not for them, anyone in that space, but for everyone watching, seeing it, the people that were uninvolved. They lifted the veil for people because the anger and hatred, it was incredibly rooted in the minds of many. We know that. And these people came into this place and lifted the veil so that you could see it. I mean, when you, when you have hate and anger in your heart, and it's not in your face, you can pretty much maintain. You can be pretty civil. But when someone comes in right in front of your face and does something you think is a slap in the face, it starts evoking things in you, emotions, tempers. The people who came and sat exposed what was already there within people, but they could no longer hide it. The moderates and uninvolved people of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, they could pretend for the most part that there wasn't really anything going on. It didn't affect your life. You could turn off the TV, not read the newspaper. It didn't really affect you. It's not really my problem. But when the lights turned on and it is on your TV and your newspaper and it's in your neighborhood and you see the blood, it wakes you up, recalibrates you, which is what happened. The church woke up. People woke up. And things started to happen. Now, the goal of those who sat placed their bodies upon an altar for our sake. I don't know how they did it. I don't know what it would take, but I know their motivation. They, they vowed never to use force or violence. Now, not everybody stuck to that, but they sat quietly or they marched peacefully singing songs from our hymnal. 
They didn't seek to conquer or become oppressors themselves. In fact, Reverend King sought to be a light to all. Hear the language? Even the people who hated him. Here's his quote, and this gives me chills every time. He says, I've seen too much hate to want to hate myself. And every time I see it, I say to myself, hate is too great a burden to bear. Somehow we must be able to stand up against our most bitter opponents and say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will. We will still love you. But be assured that we'll wear you down with our capacity to suffer. And one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will appeal to your heart and conscience so that we will win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. calling to bring salvation and truth and justice for people of color was too small a charge for Dr. King. He wanted everybody to be free. Like Isaiah, he saw the vision of God for all the earth, and he was willing to lay his life down for it. Wow. And now we have a Monday off work. How do we spend that day? Now, some of us in our life of faith in this church right now, we're still hesitant to commit ourselves fully to God. And that's okay, okay? I'm not going to beat you down. That's okay. Because, I mean, I long for you to commit your whole life. Absolutely. Don't get me wrong. But this is no light decision. This is no easy task. So offering your whole life, I hope you really think it through. And you wrestle with the doubt that you have. Invite God into the wrestle. Some of us have committed long before today, but we have struggled to truly recalibrate and enter into that journey. Some have begun that journey and they've just kind of gotten off track. We get comfortable, we find it easy to moderate and be uninvolved, and we can easily pretend that we have already been perfected. Anybody with me on that one? Some of us have experienced incredible growth. We've been awed by the recalibration the Holy Spirit has brought into our lives so much that we don't think the same way we did. And that's a good thing. The Spirit brings into our hearts this this presence in the life of ups and downs. Some of us are so hungry and thirsty for God's justice that we pursue nothing else, or at least almost nothing else. My friends, no matter where you are in your journey, I want you to hear the words of Isaiah one more time. But I, Isaiah, have said, I have wearied myself in vain. I have used up my strength for nothing. Nevertheless, The Lord will grant me justice. My reward is with my God. And now the Lord has decided. The one who formed me from the womb as a servant, this Lord, decided to restore the people of God to him. Moreover, I'm honored in the Lord's eyes. My God has become my strength. The Lord, Redeemer of God's people in its holy name, says to the one despised, rejected by nations, to the slave of rulers, kings will see stand up. Commanders will bow down on account of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. The joys and fears you feel right now, they're real. Your tears and your laughter, they belong. Our worries and anxieties, they're real things we have to face. But let us aim our eyes higher 
for the grander calling of God for all. The Holy Spirit wants to recalibrate and restore you and is restoring anyone who simply opens up and says, I need restoring. It brings us into this life. When we feel the urge to resist, let us wrestle with ourselves, not the source of the growth. Wrestle with yourself. Why am I resisting? What am I scared of? And then let us not fear the dance of growth where fear and doubt and faith all dance together. We're called to let go of what we think we know because of this. God is bigger than any doubt or worry. Amen? God is more faithful than you ever could be. Amen? And God will love this world through our struggle in such a way that we will be one in the process so that God's victory is perfect and complete. Amen? So approach each day with anticipation of all the recalibration it might bring you. Get up and say, God, what do you got for me today? I'm ready. I want to be fluid. I want to move with you. And then listen, and then learn, and then pray, and be disciplined. Come to church with your family and savor each step of growth along the road of faith as we actively pursue Jesus Christ. And then tomorrow, on your day off, if you, got, if you have one, if you're lucky enough to have one, reflect upon the calling of an American prophet and consider the word of truth and justice he brought as an invitation for our continued recalibration. Amen? Amen.